Welcome to the Trucking Market Update on the State of Freight Podcast, brought to you by FTR, where we share timely transportation intelligence with you on a weekly basis. The Trucking Market Update is hosted by FTR's Vice President of Trucking, Avery Weiss. As Avery presents the information in the podcast, you can follow along and review the graphs and indicators by downloading the PDF or PowerPoint of the presentation from our podcast landing page. A link to the PDF and PowerPoint is available now at www.ftrintel.com podcast. From there, you can also find past episodes and downloads for the Trucking Market Update, as well as the weekly rail market update with Todd Tronowski and much more. That link again is www.ftrintel.com podcast. Welcome to FDR's weekly trucking market update. I'm Avery Vice, Vice President of Trucking. This is episode 67 for the week of June 8th, 2020. Before we start, a reminder that you can download a PDF with graphics related to this discussion at www.ftrintel.com podcast. You can also download a PowerPoint presentation that includes images of those same charts you can use in your own presentations. Before we dig into the data, there are some regulatory and legislative topics to cover. First, on June 5th, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration provided some relief to carriers related to the drug testing regulations. Under the regulations, if a driver is removed from a carrier's random test pool for drug and alcohol testing for more than 30 days, employers must require that that driver undergo a pre-employment drug test before using him or her again. Now, we've recognized this issue very early on in the COVID-19 crisis, and some carriers have dealt with it by keeping drivers in the test pool, even though the drivers might be furloughed or otherwise not be working for them, and that's perfectly legal under the previous guidance. Of course, that assumes a driver who isn't being paid is willing to stay in your random test pool. But now FMCSA has granted more flexibility by extending the period during which a driver can be absent from the random test pool to thirty or to 90 days from the 30-day period. Given the tens of thousands of truck drivers who've been idled in the wake of COVID-19, FMCSA's action represents a significant reduction in one of the potential barriers to bringing drivers back from furloughs and layoffs once they need them. Conversely, it also takes some pressure away to bring drivers back before they are needed in order to avoid pre-employment tests, although that barrier probably would not have been enough for many carriers to justify bringing back drivers before they really needed them. In granting the relief, FMCSA referred to the, quote, administrative and cost burdens, end quote, of pre-employment testing as carriers attempt to return to expanded levels of operation. There is another unspoken issue, of course, and that is the risk that a large number of pre-employment tests might result in positive results that could disqualify thousands of drivers, at least temporarily. The potential for a significant issue is not unreasonable given the numbers of positive tests reported to the Drug and Alcohol Clearinghouse earlier this year. This waiver, as of now, at least expires September 30th. For more information, you can go to fmcsa.gov, fmcsa.dot.gov slash COVID-19. The second issue I want to talk about is President Trump on June 5th 
signing into law a bill, which is H.R. 7010, that grants flexibility in the rules that Congress had initially set for the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP. And that's the program that provides uh, forgivable loans to businesses with 500 or fewer employees. The legislation expands the forgiveness period for expenses to 24 weeks. It allows non-payroll expenses for loan forgiveness for up to 40% of the loan proceeds. It extends the PPP loan terms to five years. It ensures full access to payroll tax deferment for businesses that also take PPP loans. And it extends the rehiring deadline through 2020. For information on this legislation, you can go to congress.gov and search HR 7010. Finally, the Democratic leadership of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee last week unveiled transportation legislation that would replace the FAST Act, and that expires on September 30th. Although the key impetus for the bill is the need to continue funding authority, what's controversial, of course, are the legislative provisions. Among other things, Title IV of the bill includes a provision that would require DOT to evaluate the impacts of exemptions before finalizing the recent changes to hours of service rules. And it also establishes uh, stronger reporting requirements for carriers using exemptions. Title IV also would mandate rulemakings requiring automatic emergency braking systems in newly built uh, commercial motor vehicles and stronger rear uh, underguard, uh, underride guards uh, for newly manufactured trailers. Another measure in the bill would create a truck leasing task force to examine lease and lease purchase agreements commonly made available to truck drivers and the impacts of these, quote, captive, end quote, leases on driver pay. The bill also uh, would require DOT to collect and use data on driver detention to determine the link between detention and safety outcomes and it directs DOT to complete revisions to the Compliance Safety Accountability Program to prioritize reinstatement of the public display of safety data and to finalize a rule related to carrier safety fitness determinations. The full TNI committee will meet on June 17th to advance the legislation, which is a foregone conclusion given that the Democrats control the House and its committees. The legislation, which has been dubbed the Invest in America Act, almost certainly will pass the House at some point this summer, but the legislative provisions in the bill are non-starters in the Senate, I suspect. Time is short for a major infrastructure bill before the election, so typically we at most would see only an extension of the funding levels currently in the FAST Act. However, if the economic recovery were to stall out over the next few months, it's not out of the question that Congress could pass some version of this legislation, although probably without most of the policy changes or, or with those changes watered down. For more information, you can find the text and summary of the bill at transportation.house.gov. Okay, moving on to the spot market. Before I start throwing out numbers, I want to provide some context for this. The week ended June 5th, which is week 22, uh, of the year, followed a week that included the Memorial Day holiday. So you have to chalk up some of the increases we'll be discussing to that favorable comparison. Also, 
last year and in several of the years in the past five years, Memorial Day fell in week 22. So when we compare the most recent week's uh, results, which of course did not include Memorial Day, to those prior years, there will be some skewing there as well. That said, we are starting to see some solid results in absolute terms as the U.S. economy continues to emerge from strict lockdowns over the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, so total truck spot volumes in the truckstop.com system rose nearly 27% last week from the prior week. Volume increases range from 19% for refrigerated to more than 31% for flatbed. Total load availability was more than 10% higher than the five-year average for week 22 and more than 21% higher than the same week last year. And again, a reminder, those were weeks that were uh, depressed in terms of the volume by the Memorial Day holiday. Dry van spot volumes were up nearly 21% over the previous week. Load postings are about 7% above the five-year average for week 22 and about 18% above the same week last year. Dry van volumes were higher in week 22 than they've been all year, except for the first week of the year and the three weeks of the grocery restocking phase that we saw in March. Refrigerated volumes rose 19% in week 22 after a drop of more than 13% in week 21. Volumes are about 11% above both the five-year average and the same 2019 week. Load volumes in week 22 we're close to the volumes that we saw posted in February on an absolute basis. Flatbed posted the strongest week-over-week growth at more than 31% after a slight dip in the prior week. Volumes are up 11% uh, from the five-year average for the week, and they're almost 32% higher than week 22 of last year. Flatbed volumes have yet to match those in February and early March, but they are as strong or stronger than volumes recorded prior to the February surge, which has a lot to do with residential construction at that time. Spot rates were higher in week 22, though not by much. The broker posted rate per mile excluding fuel surcharge was up two and a half cents. Rates are up about 34 cents below, um, or at about 34 cents below the five-year average and about seven cents below the same 2019 week. While loads are more than 21% higher in week 22, as I said earlier, um, year over year, rates were nearly 20 or nearly 4% below the same 2019 week. Drive-in rates rose about 5.5 cents and are about uh, 24 cents below the five-year average and about a penny below last year's rate. Refrigerated rates were up nearly two cents and are nearly 10 cents above last year's rate, although reefer rates are still about 17 cents below the five-year average. Flatbed rates also increased just under two cents. They are about 27 cents below the five-year average and about 12 cents below last year. As I mentioned at the beginning of this discussion, week 22 benefited from some favorable seasonal comparisons. That ends next week and Week 23 has been a very strong week in the spot market in recent years because of the Commercial Vehicle Safety Alliance's three-day international road check inspection event, which occurred during that week. Now, that week would have been a month earlier this year, but it ultimately was canceled altogether. 
June in general is a strong month for the spot market, so these strong prior year comparisons will be harder to maintain. Okay, let's talk about petroleum and diesel prices. Crude prices have recovered to almost where they were just before the U.S. began to see a drop in activity uh, due to COVID-19. But the virus had exerted downward pressure by then already because of the virus in China uh, and the impact it had had on demand. The price of a barrel of West Texas Intermediate Crude closed on June 5th at just under $40, which is the highest price since March 6th. Even if you exclude the unprecedented negative crude price on April 20th, crude prices have recovered about $30 a barrel since the trading session that immediately followed that bizarre event. Not surprisingly, diesel prices were up for the week, though not by much. The national average price of on-highway diesel rose one cent to $2.39.6 during the week into June 8th. It's only the second increase this year after a smaller one a couple of weeks ago. I said this two weeks and I was partially wrong, but it does seem like diesel prices have bottomed out. I was only partially wrong because the price of diesel was down during the week into June 1st, but it was down only by the amount that it had risen the week before. So it didn't go any lower. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about the labor market starting with the first-time claims for unemployment benefit data that we've been talking about every week. Um, that totaled almost 1.9 million on a seasonally adjusted basis for the week ended May 30th, which is quite a lot for being 11 weeks into this. The latest figures bring total seasonally adjusted claims over the past 11 weeks to nearly 43 million. The unadjusted number of claims, which is the absolute number, is a about 3.4 million below that, so it's a little bit under 40 million. Also increasing was the number of Americans continuing to receive unemployment benefits, which rose by 649,000 during the week ended May 23rd. Uh, this data does lag initial claims data by a week. This increase was surprising because the week before that, continued claims had fallen by almost 4 million, and we had assumed that the number of people continuing to receive claims would continue to fall as the economy uh, steadily reopened. However, the reversal in that trend wasn't any more surprising than the increase in payroll employment during May, as reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics on Friday. BLS said the economy added back 2.5 million of the nearly 22 million jobs that had been shed during March and April. We had expected modest additional job losses for several reasons. First, the data collection period for May was the middle of the month, which was early in the recovery from lockdowns, while the April period had likewise ended in the middle of that month when it appeared employers were still reducing payrolls. Also, the peak of continued claims uh, for unemployment was the week immediately prior to the data collection and it was millions above the figure four weeks earlier, which would have been the period for the April collection. Finally, two days before the monthly jobs report, payroll processing firm ADP had estimated that the economy had shed 2.8 million jobs in May. Although it's not unusual for BLS and ADP to differ somewhat in their monthly reports, in April both had reported more than 20 million jobs lost. 
So it was surprising to see such a dramatic gap between those two reports, which do, by the way, have the same collection period. It could be that the BLS report came in just in time to capture a positive swing. As I noted earlier, we had seen a reduction in continued unemployment claims of nearly 4 million for the week ended May 16th, and that was the week during the BLS data collection. Leisure and hospitality, which had taken by far the biggest hit in job loss during March and April, represented nearly half of the net job gains in May, adding more than 1.2 million payroll jobs. Construction was second in job growth at 464,000, restoring nearly half the jobs it had lost in April. Other big gains included healthcare and social assistance, which was up 391,000, and retail trade, which was up 368,000. Manufacturing added 225,000 payroll jobs. In contrast to April, when almost all industries lost jobs, only about a third of U.S. industries lost jobs in May. The largest job loser by far was local government, which was down 487,000, primarily due to continued school closures. We are seeing some big swings here, so it helps to look at where things stand now relative to the last good month for employment, which was February. Overall, payroll employment is down 19.5 million. Accommodation and food services is the hardest hit sector and remains down by 5.7 million jobs, even with the return of 1.2 million jobs in May. Retail trade is down 2 million, Healthcare and social assistance is down 1.9 million. By the way, although the May payroll job levels were 2.5 million above April, something that got very little attention is the downward revision of April's initial payroll employment levels by 669,000. Normally, that would be a huge revision, but it is barely noticed when we're talking about millions of jobs lost and added in a single month. But it does mean that relative to what BLS had initially reported last month, payroll jobs are actually up by 1.8 million, not 2.5 million. Before we wrap up on employment by talking about transportation specific uh, job levels, I do want to point out a couple of issues related to the employment data because I I find them interesting. First, the unemployment rate. Officially, the unemployment rate dropped from 14.7% to 13.3%. But the Bureau of Labor Statistics itself acknowledged on its website that there is an issue related to classification of responses to certain questions. The agency estimates that a more accurate figure would be 16.4%. Now, it would still be a reduction from April, though, because instead of 14.7%, the unemployment rate would have been 19.5% had all responses been properly classified, the Bureau estimates. Uh, BLS does not have any intention to revise these numbers, but it is trying to get to the root of the classification error, and it does call it an error. Um, The other thing I want to highlight that isn't an error exactly, but it is darn misleading, is average weekly earnings. Until April, the year-over-year change in average weekly earnings for U.S. workers had uh, been a bit more than 2.5% each month on average for the past decade. 
In April, average weekly earnings were up 7.4% year-over-year, while in May they were up 7.7%. Those are basically three times the average rate before April, and indeed more than twice the highest year-over-year increase for any month over the past decade. Now, before you start pondering whether maybe businesses decided to let go a bunch of workers and then make up for it by working the remaining workers harder and paying them more, no, that's not it. Average weekly earnings are up because um, much of the job reductions related to COVID-19 were, um, and in fact, disproportionately were in the ranks of lower lower paid workers. So in other words, it's just badly skewed data that isn't wrong. It's just meaningless. Okay, so in April for higher trucking shed 89,800 payroll jobs, which is a revised figure. And that's 5.9% of trucking employment. In May, trucking payrolls fell by another 1,200. It's a tiny number, but it is still a reduction. Since February, trucking payroll employment has fallen by 95,700, or 6.3%. On the other hand, couriers and messengers, or what we would call parcel and local delivery, added 12,100 jobs in May. And in fact, it was one of only three U.S. industries to add any jobs at all in April. The parcel and local delivery sector has had only one negative month, which was February of this year, since February of last year. And since February, the sector has added 17,900 jobs, or 2.1%. Finally, in Last week's podcast, we talked about the bottom line export and import trends for April and talked about how goods exports were down much more sharply than goods imports. Now we have country-specific data, and it's pretty interesting. Trade with all but six of our 20 largest trading partners was down in April year over year. Four of those, France, Mexico, India, and Canada, were down more than 40%, while three... Belgium, Brazil, and the United Kingdom were down more than 30%. Trade with China, while down year over year, was down only 6.8%, which probably has to do with both the fact that China was one of the first countries to begin emerging from COVID-19 and, probably more to the point, because prior year data was already very negative because of the trade war. Among the countries with uh, growth in April, Only two were double digits, Singapore at 17.5% and Switzerland at 90.3%. Yes, that's 90.3% growth. If we look at trade in the first four months, the picture is similar with just eight of the top 20 up in trade year over year. And the biggest gainer was Switzerland at 35.1% more than double the next largest gain of 15.5%, which was in trade with Ireland. The trade in goods with Switzerland obviously jumped out to me as something extraordinary and worth investigating. I mean, Americans probably have been eating more chocolate and cheese over the past three months, but not that much more, and probably not much of it was from Switzerland anyway. It turned out to be a little harder to get to the heart of this matter than I thought, but I did eventually find a Reuters article from May 26th that reported that Swiss exports of gold to the U.S. totaled 
111.7 tons, by far the largest amount on record. By the way, this is a great opportunity to remind you that the Census Bureau trade data we discuss each month is based on dollar value and isn't a measure that translates very well into transportation volumes. In this case, the entire export volume of the largest export commodity of the U.S.'s fastest growing trading partner could be carried in just three, four, or five tractor trailers, depending on distribution. Actually, it probably would fit into a single trailer, but obviously if you were hauling a truckload of gold, aside, of course, from being heavily armed, you most definitely would gross out before you cubed out. So that's it for this week's podcast. Let's recap. FMCSA provided some enforcement relief related to pre-employment drug testing. Congress enacted some flexibility in the Paycheck Protection Program. House Democrats introduced a new transportation bill with some controversial provisions. Spot market load volumes were sharply higher. Crude prices recovered to nearly $40 a barrel. Diesel prices were down, were up one cent. First time and continued unemployment claims were up in the latest week. The U.S. added 2.5 million payroll jobs in May, but remains near down nearly 20 million jobs since February. Trucking payrolls slid slightly, but payroll and uh, parcel and local delivery was up strongly. And trade with Switzerland far outpaced major U.S. trading partners due to imports of gold into the U.S. So that's it for FDR's Trucking Market Update, episode 67 for the week of June 8, 2020. As always, you can download PDF and PowerPoint files accompanying this discussion at www.ftrintel.com podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we hope you will join us next week. That's it for this week's Trucking Market Update on the State of Freight podcast. You can find more publicly available State of Freight content and download the PDF and PowerPoint of today's presentation by going to www.ftrintel.com podcast. FTR is the leader in freight transportation forecasting in North America, providing consistently reliable reports for trucking, rail, and intermodal transportation, as well as providing demand analysis for commercial vehicle and rail car. For more information about the work of FTR, visit www.ftrintel.com or call us at 888-988-1699 to find out which publications will best support your business.